Welcome to the third episode of Biographical Bites from Bala, West Laurel Hill Stories. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is a historic and active cemetery in Bala, Kenwood, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1869 across the river from its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill Cemetery, in Philadelphia. It's larger than Laurel Hill, a lot larger. It has a totally different feel and a strikingly different population. Now, like Laurel Hill, it is open 365 days a year, now from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. That's until April, when the hours expand back to 7 p.m. Plenty of parking at the business office just off Belmont Avenue or at the Bell Tower. If you enter on Belmont, follow the road with the white line in the middle. That'll take you to the Bell Tower. Another possibility is just duck in while you're walking the Kidwood Trail. Your best bet for public transportation is probably take a bus to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue. Then cross the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge and come in via the Writer's Ferry entrance across from the Pet Cemetery. Our third episode of Biographical Bites from Bala is for mid-December 2021. It concerns a woman of extraordinary beauty from an exceptional family who made her own mark on the world as a radio show host during World War II. I'm going to tell you the story of a woman who is so beautiful that her aunt, a famed portraitist, painted her nine times, and who turned down more than 50 proposals for marriage before she wed a newspaper man, who later became the United States' first ambassador to the Soviet Union, and who then had an affair with one of the most famous illustrators of the 20th century and who married a second time to a famed opera composer, and who then spent World War II as a radio propagandist pushing for the rights of women, and then spent years in New York City running one of the most exclusive weekly salons in the city. Oh, and one of her brothers invented the iron lung, and another brother founded the Harvard School of Public Health. And a third brother sponsored the Von Trapp family for their first few years in the United States. And their sister was an award-winning writer of biographies. From this description, you may recognize the Drinker and Bow families. Most of them are buried in an unassuming plot on the side of a hill in the summit section of West Laurel Hill Cemetery. I plan to do a podcast about the entire Drinker family sometime in 2022. But I want to get the story of Amy Ernesta Drinker Bullet Bow Commando Mary Barlow down while it is fresh in my mind. I'll give you a little bit of backup on the Drinkers, though. They've been on this continent since 1635, when Philip Drinker emigrated from England. 
Elizabeth Sandwith Drinker, 1735 to 1807, was a compulsive diary keeper during the Revolutionary War period. She originally planned this as something for her great-grandchildren to read, but it became one of the most reliable sources of information about Philadelphia and its inhabitants from 1758 to 1807. That's a really critical time in our nation's history. She and her husband are buried at Friends Arch Street Burial Grounds in Center City. Now, Amy Ernesta Drinker, she's named for her mother, Amy Ernesta Bow Drinker, was born in 1892. Her father, Henry Sturgis Drinker, 1850 to 1937, was a graduate of Lehigh University who worked as a mechanical engineer for the Lehigh Valley Railroad. Lehigh University had been established in 1865 by businessman Asa Packer. Henry Drinker was made president of the university in 1895, the first graduate to achieve this honor. Ernesta's mother, known as Etta, was sister to famed portrait painter Cecilia Bow. I covered their story in podcast number eight, The Lady Artists. Cecilia, who had studied at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, saw a beauty in Ernesta and painted her many times, initially when she was only two, in a really startling 1894 portrait. It's called Child with Nurse, Ernesta. It shows a well-dressed, rosy-cheeked toddler with an adult in a dress we can only see from the waist down. This painting is now on display at the Met Fifth Avenue, New York, in Gallery 768. Ernesta grew up a strong-willed, long-legged tomboy at the family homes in Haverford and Bethlehem. She refused to attend boarding school because she was having too much fun. So most of her instruction came from tutors in the home. She went on a trip with her mother and sister to England and France when she was 16 years old, and she started fending off marriage proposals from men stunned by her beauty. She spent some time at the Baldwin School in Bryn Mawr and a single term at Radcliffe. Starting in 1908, you can see her name in the society columns dozens of times as her various friends and acquaintances were presented to society. But she delayed her own coming out for a few years. In the family biography, Ernesto's sister Catherine said, She doesn't seem to realize how pretty she is. It's not easy to describe Ernesta. I have said that she is black-haired, black-browed, with high cheekbones, and that her eyes were large and lustrous. To this day, I am not sure of their color, if brown or green. I used to think that her eyes changed with the clothes she wore, or that somehow her irises reflected the light, shifting suddenly from bright to shadow. I have seen men catch their breath looking at Ernesta. Marriage proposals continued through her teens. By the time she turned 21, Ernesta had received so many marriage proposals that she and her mother had stopped counting at 50. She spent her summers and as much time as possible with her aunt, whom in the family just called Bo, in Gloucester where she started speaking with an affected accent that she claimed she liked much better than the Philadelphia accent of the rest of the family. Her accent once almost led to blows with her older brother Cecil, who complained about it until the end of his life. 
Ernesta outlived him by a quarter century. She started keeping diaries at a young age, using a bold backwards slant that was fashionable to young women at the time. At age 22, she told her sister Catherine that she didn't ever propose to be bored and she was going to keep out of boring situations. Around 1915, Ernesta Drinker met fellow Philadelphian William Christian Bullitt Jr. After a whirlwind romance, they married on Saturday, 20 March 1916 at Packer Memorial Church at Lehigh University. William Christian Bullitt Jr. was born in Philadelphia on 25 January 1891. His father was an executive with the Norfolk and Western Railroad and an investor in coal mines in Virginia. His grandfather was John Christian Bullitt, founder of the law firm Drinker, Biddle, and Wreath, and whose statue stands at the north side of City Hall since 1907. The grandfather, John Christian Bullitt, is interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery. William Bullitt was also a bit of a rebel. He refused to go to the elite boarding school of Groton, saying, every Groton fellow I know is a snob. Instead, he attended the local Delancey School. Bullitt did go to Yale University in 1908, and along with his friend Cole Porter, was active in the Dramatic Association. Bullitt also attended Harvard Law School, but found he had no affinity or liking for the law. He dropped out when his father died. In 1914, Bill Bullitt and his mother went on a tour of Russia, but they left when the war broke out. He was inspired by muckraking journalists such as Lincoln Steffens and Upton Sinclair, so he became a reporter for the Philadelphia Public Ledger at a salary of $10 per week. He soon had his own column. In 1915, he got to know John Reed, a journalist he had admired since reading his work in The Masses. When he was sent to cover the war from Germany, William, whom Ernesta always referred to as Billy, took his bride with him. Walter Lippmann described him as, quote, one of the sharpest of the American correspondents. Ernesta also took up writing, and she kept a personal diary intending for it to inform her great-grandchildren, just as her great-great-grandmother Elizabeth had done more than two centuries earlier. But when they returned to the United States in 1916, William's personal notes had been confiscated by the Germans. But Ernesta's diary strangely escaped censorship or seizure. She published a popular book, An Uncensored Diary from the Central Empires. It is available at no charge as a PDF online from usarchive.org. Her writing style is a delight to read. Here she describes a typical German meal during the war. Dinner at the Esplanade tonight was really too awful. We had neither meat nor bread cards, so we're reduced to a dish called lost eggs and asparagus. The eggs were lost in some dreadful vegetable, and the asparagus was the fat, white, and tasteless stuff they grow here. Billy remarked that the sauce hollandaise must have been difficult to make without either butter, eggs, or olive oil. And his tea, he said, reminded him of when his nurse used to stick her finger in a cup of hot water and tell him to drink your tea, dearie. I had apricots for dessert and ate a great number, 
that they had begun to ferment was no longer a drawback. At least they tasted of something. In 1917, Ernesta gave birth to a son, but the baby died after two days. William had been made head of the Public Ledger's Washington Bureau, where he supplied information to Edward House, President Woodrow Wilson's chief advisor. In November 1917, House arranged for William to become Assistant Secretary of State, where he was considered an expert on the Russian Revolution. In December 1918, Ernesta went with William and the American delegation to the Versailles Peace Conference, where he made it clear that he was strongly opposed to Allied intervention in the Russian Civil War. On 17 May 1919, he read the terms of the Treaty of Versailles and publicly resigned. He condemned the peace as a tragic mockery of the principle of self-determination. After leaving his government job, Bullitt became managing editor of film stories at Paramount Pictures. In 1921, he met fellow journalist Louise Bryant, John Reed's widow, and started traveling with her, introducing her as his niece. This was the beginning of the end of William's marriage to Ernesta. William had made his name known as an expert in Russian affairs. He would eventually be appointed by Franklin Roosevelt as the first U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union from 1933 to 1936. But William Christian Bullitt Jr.'s marriage to Amy Ernesta Drinker ended in 1923. Her sister said the marriage had been in trouble for some time. My sister's early ambition to marry a man who would let her argue with him did not materialize. With Bill Bullitt, I think no woman, beautiful or ugly, could have held her own. Ernesta was still a beauty at 31. She continued to attract men. The year that her divorce was in the courts, she rented an apartment in the former Stuyvesant Fish House at 15 Gramercy Park in New York. This is the same building where Aunt Bo lived. Ernesta was still her aunt's pet. She had already painted her several times. And Cecilia was anxious for her niece's welfare. She remarked to her friend George Seymour that, quote, she is too like me. I am worrying over her. She now took the name Ernesta Bow, using her mother's maiden name as her own. Ernesta Bow embarked on a career as the in-house decorator of fashionable residential architect Harry Thomas Lindbergh. Harry is spelled H-A-R-R-I-E. He designed residences for Philip D. Armour III, Amelita Gallacurci, John J. Pillsbury, and others. During this time, she briefly took celebrated graphic artist Rockwell Kent as a lover. Kent wrote her many steamy love letters which have been preserved and they are available for researchers at Georgetown University. There is no doubt that Kent was obsessed with her. Sweetheart, I cannot write. For nearly two hours I have sat here, abandoned to my thoughts of you. I am drunk with the memory of you and the hope Ernesta, Ernesta, I cry as if my cry for you might bring you to me. And you, dear heart, dear sweet, sweet love of mine, are of my hands, my lips, my eyes, and every sense awakened into consciousness, and of my ardent spirit, the whole and last desire. Dear girl, I am enveloped by your loveliness. 
Now, as an internal designer, Ernesta's crowning glory was the River House. It's along the East River between 52nd and 53rd Streets. This 26-story Art Deco masterpiece at one time actually had a pier where its residents could dock their yachts. It's still one of the premier places to live in New York City. They once turned away Gloria Vanderbilt's attempt to purchase a condominium. Its residents through the years have included Cornelius Vanderbilt Whitney, Henry Kissinger, Joshua Logan, Kermit Roosevelt, Quentin Reynolds, Uma Thurman, and FM radio pioneer Edwin Armstrong. Despite the attention from Rockwell Kent and other men, Ernesta took a liking to a neighbor in Gramercy Park. In 1921, composer Samuel Latham Mitchell Barlow II had bought the remodeled brownstone house next door. Samuel and Ernesta were the same age, and they found they had many of the same interests. Samuel Barlow had graduated from Harvard in 1914 and then studied at Juilliard, Paris, and Rome. He served as a lieutenant with the U.S. Army Intelligence during the war. In 1916, he married a disuse, or monologist, named Evelyn Harris Brown. That marriage ended in 1924. It did not take long for Ernesta and Samuel to see that they were meant for each other. On 10 May 1928, in Cecilia Bowe's apartment in Gramercy, Samuel Barlow married Ernesta Bowe. They remained together for more than 50 years until her death in 1981. Barlow was also independently wealthy, but he continued to write music. In 1935, he became the first American composer to have an opera performed at the Opera Comique in Paris, his one-work act, Mon Ami Pierrot. The following year, the Philadelphia Orchestra under Leopold Stokowski performed his Concerto for Magic Lantern and Symphony Orchestra, an adaptation of the children's book, Babar the Elephant. He also contributed music to the Broadway musical Amphitryon, starring Alfred Lunt and Lynn Fontan. Now, in addition to her interior decorating, Ernesta continued to write. The New York Times of 12 August 1935 tells of a preview of Thy People by Ernesta Bowe at the Red Barn Theater, Locust Valley, Long Island, with Helen Kingsley in the leading role. It was called a problem drama. It retold the old story of Ruth and Naomi, the title reflecting the biblical verse, Thy People Shall Be My People. One cannot but think there was a hint of autobiography in the script, as it did involve a woman marrying a musician she met as a shipboard romance. She also wrote articles on travel and fashion for Vogue and Atlantic Monthly. She hunted stags and foxes in France and Ireland. Her struggles with her checkbook were legendary. While she was making $75,000 a year as a decorator, she frequently found herself short of cash. Once she had to cable her secretary from Paris to see if she could afford to buy a hat. She was unaware at the time she had $35,000 in her checking account. Ernesta took her husband's name. She was now Ernesta Barlow. She became active in women's concerns and started giving speeches around New York and the East Coast. The Barlows spent their summers at his home on a hillside in Aise, France, just a few miles from Nice. 
On 9 December 1940, the Carnegie Institute in Pittsburgh announced that visitors to its survey of American painting had selected Cecilia Bowes' Child with Nurse, Ernesta, as the most popular of the 367 canvases in competition. Ironically, runner-up in the contest was This Is My Own by Ernesta's former lover, Rockwell Kent. Now, when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor in December 1941, Ernesta asked herself, what can I do to help? She decided she wanted to do a radio program. Her friends did not think so much. They said that her upper-class accent would drive people away. She was determined. It started as a five-minute series called You and the War and was presented as a local New York program over station WEAF. Soon, the show became syndicated across the country. It had expanded to 15 minutes, and along the way, its name had changed to a much more macho-sounding Commando Mary. Ernesta had an agenda, get women involved in wartime occupations. There were both salaried and voluntary war jobs available to America's 45 million women in factories, farm homes, laboratories, and offices. As Commando Mary, she recruited guests to talk about women's war efforts. And much to NBC Radio's surprise, this women's niche program also became popular with men who flooded the stations with letters lauding Ernesta's distinctive voice, clarity and directness, charming cadence, and humor and personality. One New York surgeon was so bold as to say, yours is the perfect radio voice. Commando Mary, a woman known for her physical beauty, had become a radio star. She visited war plants all over the country, talking with women, bringing their stories back for her show. She lined up guest stars, everyone from an honor student at Radcliffe to First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. For three years, she was a constant presence on the airwaves, backing the United States war efforts. And for three years, she crisscrossed the country, speaking to men's groups about the value of universal military training. I have searched desperately in online archives for copies of Commando Mary. I was unable to find them. If you know how I can get a copy of Commando Mary on the air, please let me know. Joe at JoeLex.net. Yes, I know the scripts are all available. They're available at Georgetown. But I'm sure it is nothing like actually listening to her do a radio show. After the war, Ernesta testified in hearings before the Committee on Military Affairs of the House of Representatives 79th Congress late in 1945. She was representing the Citizens Committee for Military Training of Young Men, Incorporated, a national organization endorsing universal military training. She mentioned her bona fides, among them, I happen to be the daughter of a university president myself, and my two brothers are in Harvard as research men. Some of them oppose, and some are for it. It is the smaller educator who is against it. She got into quite a verbal battle with a couple of congressmen who felt that universal military service would lead to a militaristic nation. When questioned at the end of her intense testimony, a congressman asked her, 
Will you have enough confidence to accept whatever Congress decides is right for the security of our country? Her response? I will not, Mr. Congressman. I do not think that I will always accept entirely what Congress decides. If they decide against this, that will not convince me that it is wrong for the country. When asked about service for women, she answered, I do not think it is at all necessary to include the women at this time. I think if we did, what we would get out of it would be Girl Scout organizations where young folks were trained to heat K-rations in the rain. Her testimony is a delight to read from start to finish. Again, you can find it online. 1950, Ernesto made a speaking tour of the United States to awaken an interest in government in women. Calling American housewives poor housekeepers, she explained, We may be neat as pins and good cooks in our homes, but our housekeeping attitude in regard to welfare of our government are woefully negligent on local, state, and national levels. When she appeared on Eleanor Roosevelt's radio show in 1951, the former First Lady asked the obvious question, Where did the name Commando Mary come from? Ernesta said, I never could quite discover. The program was supposed to be a program on American industry at war and how women were to get into war jobs, and I always felt rather ashamed and humiliated at being called Commando Mary, considering what commando meant in the war. But when the farmers began to name their cows after me, well, I began to think I must be a success. Samuel Barlow served for several years as drama and dance critic for modern music. The Barlows were in the habit of having a musical gathering every Wednesday evening in their apartment. They had converted their fourth floor to a music room, which apparently had near-perfect acoustics. In addition to members of New York society, it was not unusual to find Arturo Rubinstein, Leontine Price, W. Somerset Maugham, Felix Frankfurter, Paul Robeson, Grace Vanderbilt, Jeffrey Holder, Noel Coward, or Joan Sutherland at their gatherings. The end of an era took place in April 1971, when the Barlows held the last of several hundred gatherings in their Gramercy Park apartment, which they had sold because it was, quote, impossible to keep up. Ernesta was in fine form. This is the first party in which I've known everyone. The guests were, quote, people who really care about music, and the entertainment, of course, was supplied by the Juilliard String Quartet. The reporter noted Mrs. Barlow's white hair was arranged with a large turquoise comb, and stones glittered at neck and ears. The real jewels were sold several years ago. Last year, Mrs. Barlow saw a woman at the Metropolitan Opera wearing one of her former necklaces and greeted her with, That's a lovely necklace. I wore it for 40 years. The next year, the Barlows each turned 80 years old. The Barlows spent their last 10 years together at Springfield Residence in Winmore, just across the road from Chestnut Hill. Coincidentally, that is where my father spent his last six years. Ernesta died in 1981. Samuel followed the next year. They were both buried in the Drinker family plot at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. I personally think that Amy Ernesta Drinker Bullet Bo Barlow, a.k.a. Commando Mary, 
is one of the most interesting people that I have researched at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. Remember that the regular edition of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories will be available on the fourth Friday of the month. The January edition is called Tennis Anyone. It features five people buried at West Laurel Hill who first helped establish the sport and then made changes in the sport that affected everyone who plays it today. Biographical Bites from Bala, West Laurel Hill edition number four, will come out the second Friday in January. It will be on Theodore Presser, a man who made music his life, not as a performer or a composer, but as a man who took as his mission to give music teachers across the country the tools they needed to succeed. Remember to become a member of the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries. You will get discounts on tours and in the gift shop, occasional bonus podcasts. I've got two bonus podcasts planned just for members for 2022, plus special tours that at West Laurel Hill include visits inside some of the mausoleums. Visit us at the cemeteries. You will find most of the activities at the laurelhillcemetery.org slash events. As I write this, the January schedule has not been announced. There will be at least one general tour at West Laurel Hill during the month. This is Joe Lex. I'm a retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University and a volunteer podcaster and a volunteer tour guide. Maybe I will see you on a tour. Stay safe. Stay well.